The phrase trauma seems to be everywhere. A recent article titled, Is Trauma the Word of the Decade? To the point that some attribute all our problems to trauma. Is that true? Has the word become overused? In the case where somebody says, I was stuck in traffic and I was traumatized. I was traumatized that my baseball team lost the game. Is it minimizing and desensitizing us to what real trauma is? And that's the biggest question above all. What is trauma? And beyond everything else, what can we do about it? Are we stuck in being traumatized people? Can we recreate our lives to be like the pre-trauma or are we always in a PTSD state? and so many other important questions about this topic that affects us all. Please join me in this episode called Is Trauma the New Scapegoat? Hi everyone, this is Simon Jacobson and I welcome you. We'll be speaking about, is trauma the new scapegoat? This uh, program is dedicated, happy birthday to John Eisenberg, dedicated by your MLC family in gratitude for your vision, passion, and generosity. The phrase, the term trauma seems to be everywhere. Some list it as a word of the decade. A recent article titled, How Trauma Became the Word of the Decade. Statistics show that over 5,500 podcasts have the word trauma in their title. Is this word being overused? Is it being blamed? Is it good for us to say that my problems and my challenges are all a result of trauma? Is it a scapegoat or is it a uh, remedy? And what exactly is trauma? And above all, what can we do about it? That's what we are going to be addressing. When someone says, I was stuck in traffic and I was traumatized, or I got into an argument in my office, a traumatic argument, my, my team lost a game, trauma. Is that trauma or is it just being overdramatic? The fact of the matter is that the lines are blurred, especially today, because we also live in a media society where every word becomes amplified so many times over in a certain exponential effect, and words suddenly become catchwords for almost any type of discomfort. And in turn, it can desensitize us and minimize what true trauma is. The word actually is rooted in a Greek word, the ancient Greeks, which, which means wound, a break, and was used in all contexts, not just psychological ones. 
a break, a wound. We're going to be speaking about it, hopefully, in the context of a spiritual context as well as a psychological one, but going back to the very roots. Because it's very difficult to address something once a problem has begun, then we always look at the problem and then we look at the consequences of that problem. So even if we correct the problem, but what is defining our context and our perspective, it is the problem. So sometimes a solution to a problem can also be an extension of the problem. What we really need to do is to go back to a pure state pre the problem. To somewhat paraphrase a scientific way of putting it is that you need to go outside of a system in order to solve a problem that was created by that system. In other words, you can't solve the problem completely from within the system where the problem originated. So though solutions are good, especially short-term ones and ones that work to some extent, if you really want to get to the bottom of something, we need to go back, where did it all originate? And to do that, we have to go back to a healthy state, pre-trauma. We talk about PTSD, post-trauma. But there's also pre-trauma. Even though it is true that a child can be born in a traumatized state, either the child experienced a very deep trauma during the birth, or the mother has gone through traumatized to, to, through trauma in her life and that has infect, affected her fetus. But in most cases, that is not the situation. So just like when you go to get an x-ray of, of your lungs, so you'll see the doctor will always put the, the x-ray of the lungs on a screen nearby, juxtapose it over a healthy set of lungs to be able to distinguish and say, okay, this is what the healthy version looks like, and here's where we have a problem, God forbid. A block, a growth, a lesion, or whatever it may be. The same is true when it comes to, these, to, to, to trauma and to any experiences that we go through in our lives. You want to always be able to juxtapose it over something that is the pure form of it before something happened. And then you could say, okay, now we can compare and see where are we in comparison to the perfect so-called paragon. Now, to, before we get to that, let me just share the following, which is one of the reasons I decided to speak on this topic. I counsel many people. People come speak to me. And, of course, this topic comes up where someone is acting out in a certain way, either a relationship isn't working or they're having struggles with their spouse or with children or with parents or in general life. So once upon a time ago, or even today, frankly, people dealt with these type of things in many different ways. And we're going to address all the different ways people have addressed things. But... Of late, I've been hearing more and more how people are being identifying that I was traumatized. Something happened to me in my childhood. Whether it was a one-time thing, whether it was a repeated thing, whether it was different traumas. And that's the result of what is happening now. I grow into an adult, and I'm reacting to that. Now, there's no doubt that there, in many cases that is, the, that is the situation, and that diagnosis is important, because then you can try to counter it and see what can be done to somewhat minimize the effects of the trauma, to buffer, to, to compensate. 
but, but, but I've discovered that a few people actually told me, more than one, and from very different directions and different backgrounds and different cultures, where they almost, like, I don't want to say blamed it, but like almost said, okay, till now I thought my son had a problem. Now I realize he's traumatized. And that now is, well, we're very sensitive to that, and therefore we don't look at it so, we don't blame him. We don't in any way uh, try to discipline him. We just let him be because he's been traumatized, a certain type of compassion. So there was a particular parent that told this to me, and I said to him, and when, this, when your son was traumatized, were you aware of it? No, we weren't aware. It was in school. He was failing. He was bullied. I mean, there were different uh, factors going on. So I said, but if you weren't aware of it, and he came home and spent, like every child does, spends plenty of time at home, especially over weekends, definitely even nights and so on, and you're not dealing with it, so that's part of the contributes to the problem. And I remember the resistance, like he didn't want to be part of the problem. I said, but if a parent didn't protect the child, and I didn't mean it to accuse, I just wanted to push the issue. If a parent didn't protect the child, okay, you could say you didn't know, but it's your child. So the child grows up feeling unprotected by the one that's supposed to be the main protector, father or mother, the family unit. This fellow, and, the, and I've tried this several other times, would not go there, which to me ended up being that he was using trauma like a scapegoat, like saying he was traumatized, so therefore it's not our problem, we just have to be kind and compassionate and not be judgmental. So I said, so what are you doing about it now? He says, well, we're sending him to a special school where they're a lot more sensitive, they're more customized. It's expensive, he said, but it's helping him, which is all commendable. And in no way am I trying to accuse this parent of being in any way malicious or abusive for that matter. I think it's more out of ignorance. So, but I realized that there's more than just trauma that's necessary here to deal with it. There's also, what do we do as parents where we don't just say, okay, that's the situation, now that's what we're going to surrender to. And now my child has been traumatized, so therefore the rest of their life is about healing from this trauma. But how do you really heal when you have now categorized that person in that situation and you're not doing anything more than that? I was trying to suggest to him that, as we will discuss, that you have to help the child. Now, not the child is already a, he's a, he's a, young, teen, he's a young adult at this point. You have to help him find something that nurtures him. Not just enough to be, to be compassionate and say, okay, you're a wounded child, you're a wounded human being, and let's bandage you and, and bombs and all types of ways of massaging and, and numbing the pain, but also find something that really gives him passion and direction that will let him be a, a healthy person as if he was not traumatized, and even use the trauma and transform it to something positive. Which was intriguing to the few people that I've discussed this with, and that's where I decided it's time to talk about this in a much more comprehensive fashion. So again, this is not about minimizing that trauma is an effect factor and needs to be addressed, but it's looking at the bigger picture of it all. So I would categorize it the following way. I'm talking now, I'm going to speak from the bottom up, meaning from the problem of how we found solutions to problems. And we are in an evolutionary state. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I'm, I can be a witness, and I'm sure it precedes my time, that all healing and all growth happens in incrementally, 
as we learn more about situations and people speak op- openly, people break the silence, we discover new, inter- new roots of problems and we find new interventions. But it's still an evolutionary process and it's still the middle of the process. So perhaps this talk can help precipitate and help um, expedite some of the process that we can then learn to move it forward to the best possible solution. Which I would say is that should be even better than, the, than before the trauma happened. In other words, create a better situation, not just one of damage control, but also transforming the past into a better future. So the process is usually like this. When, let, let, I'll just use a case study. Parents suddenly re- realize their child is not eating properly or is suffering from some form of anxiety. They can't really see what it is. Very often, it's ignored. It's ignored because nobody likes to shake up a comfort zone. Things are going rather relatively smoothly. It takes much more challenge for us to wake up and say there's a problem. So usually things are ignored. Sometimes ignoring is a positive thing. Maybe it isn't a big problem. Maybe it's just a moment, something, a blip in the screen, which is fine. People go through their ups and downs. And hopefully it is really meaningless. But like it is with any infection, you have an infection, it can go away. Or you can treat it, uh, you can treat the symptoms, either with um, medicine or with a Band-Aid or whatever it may be, a painkiller, and it does go away. Great. But if it doesn't, and it persists, so then the next step often is what we call denial. We avoid the issue because it's too uncomfortable. If that doesn't work, what happens next is blame. We start criticizing the person that's acting out. In this case, I'm talking about a child. It can be an adult. It could be any situation. We start blaming. And this is not just parents. It's also a community. If someone's behaving in a way that doesn't fit the norm and standards, blame. It's a troublemaker. Maybe it's their parents. Maybe it's uh, their, their culture. Blame comes with judgmentalism, crit- critique, and sometimes even worse than that, blacklisting someone, like almost turning them into a pariah. You avoid them. Obviously, as we can understand, that's really dealing completely superficially with something. It's making you uncomfortable. So the best, the easiest way is just to say something's wrong with this person. How many children in schools who've acted out in one way or another. I don't know if the word blame is the right word, but we're judged, either thrown out of school, over-disciplined and punished. And instead of really dealing with what they're struggling with, what happened was, they were further, I don't want to use the word trauma because we've been using it here, but they're further traumatized by the punishment or by the blame or by the critique. How many of us grew up in homes where parents were not validating, were not nurturing, but criticize if the, if the student or the child didn't behave exactly the way the parents expected, instead of working with the child, we ended up undermining, demoralizing. So all this comes into that next stage where the blame game, the judgmentalism, the demoralization, the critique, that only ends up weakening the self-esteem of the person we're addressing here. Again, this does not have to be a child, it can be an adult. And, does not, and makes the problem far, far worse. It would be like someone who has an infection now that has festered, 
We're not talking about something that's gone away. And instead of dealing with it, you're just like accusing it, so to speak. That's not solving the problem. It's making the problem worse. Now that has been, I'm not going to go now into the, the exact time periods in history where that was the best approach used, but it was an approach used for many years, for, for many. And I'm not going to deny the fact that sometimes even in religious circles, then understanding a situation, that was the way. You saw someone like that. I mean, what we read about in the, we read about in the previous centuries where someone acted out and they were called a witch. They could have even been burned at the stake. Or, or some type of curse went into them, we say. Some dibuk or something like that. So instead of addressing an issue, it was blamed. Some, something, some evil spirit or some other supernatural force. We're not in that place in most uh, cultures today, especially in the Western world. But there's other ways of blaming. Like I said, you can blame parents, you can blame schools. I mean, there's a lot of things to blame. You can blame the child, just a bad kid, or bad adult, bad apple, as they say. But what has evolved, and that's a blessing, is that we began to realize that there's more to it. There is a, there is, there's an issue. And it's not, you can't, and to blame the person who's acting out Maybe a big mistake, because something happened. So we've come to learn and discover that one second, if that child is acting out, maybe something happened in school. Maybe that child was touched inappropriately. Maybe that child was bullied. Maybe that child went through some type of trauma. And I'm using trauma in the broad term right now, not necessarily in a clinical way, and not necessarily in an accurate way. Just using that term, something happened. Some wound. It would be like your child comes home and is limping. To blame the child while they're limping, look, look into it and you find out the child fell, slipped, had a little injury. So what do you do? So not, not only you don't blame, compassion arises, empathy, which is healthy, very healthy. And more than that, you go even further and you start addressing it. What happened? Oh, you fell? Let's see the bruise. Let's see what we need to do. Let's make sure that doesn't happen again. So basically, we've moved from that to that the next stage where you actually move to find some of the causes. But here comes the next step. You can then blame the cause and try to remedy the situation short term, but have you really healed the situation? Have you really healed the problem? If you now say, okay, my child has been traumatized, so now no longer judgment and no longer anger and no longer punishment, Instead, unconditional love, is that enough? It's definitely a prog- progress, and we've seen it. We've seen today how many situations have been remedied, at least to some extent, where at least the attitude has become, instead of feeding the fire and feeding the problem, we've learned to have the compassion and empathy necessary. But there's the next point. How do we get our child, how do we get this individual to a place where they can be healthy and not just identified, okay, you're a traumatized individual. So yes, we'll do whatever is necessary. So obviously in the short term, if a person is injured, you take them to hospital, you take them to a doctor, you do what's necessary. If they need to be in bed, if they need medication. But how do you build them up to a place where, as they were before the trauma occurred? And that, I would say, we're still in the early infancy, infancy stages there. So we have come to a point of compassion and empathy, but it could also become overextended where we just say, 
even though we're not saying those words that you are damaged goods, you're basically saying, since you're traumatized, that's why we're going to treat you very special and very sensitively, and you're going to have extra love. But how many situations have we had where families actually, other children become resentful? And that extra love is necessary to help build up the person, the, I don't want to call the victim, the survivor we'll call that person, but it's not really helping them long term. So it's progress over the situation of criticizing or definitely over denial. But then comes the next step, which is how do you rebuild a human being who's been hurt in some way, whether psychologically or physically or emotionally, in any type of abuse, in any type of trauma? and not allow trauma to become the scapegoat. And say, okay, traumatize, unconditional love, and everything's going to work out. Short term, and the sensitivity, absolutely. But the longer term picture. And for that, we need to go back to what I began earlier. Where did it all begin? We were not born traumatized human beings. Meaning traumas that happened in our lives happened after we were born except in rare instances, which I'm not denying and need to be addressed in its own way. But as we shall see, we are born into a world that is not a perfect world. So what is the perfect situation, and how did life become the way it is right now, and what can we do about it? So I want to introduce, this comes from mysticism, Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah and Hasidic thought, but it's extremely profound, as well as extremely simple and eloquent in its way of understanding life and all the twists and turns and ups and downs that we experience in life. So I'll begin with a somewhat esoteric language, but I'm going to immediately translate it into practical terms. I'm going to quote Ariza, Isaac Luria, the great Kabbalist, 16th century great Kabbalist, where he introduced the concept of what's called the secret of the tzimtzum, the doctrine of tzimtzum. Tzimtzum literally means concealment. That reality, in its purest and healthiest form, is a seamless, shapeless, divine, transcendent state where there's no duality and definitely no dissonance. What he calls it, the Oren Sof, the infinite divine light, filled all existence whatever existence means, all of reality. One consciousness, one seamless consciousness. But in order to create another, a universe, an entity that's outside of this seamless unity, it's impossible when there's that type of unified um, omnipresence. So what the divine did was conceal that presence and created space for another. Essentially, to use an example, you have deep love that's all-consuming, but if you want to allow another person to be in your sphere, you can't just suffocate them with your love. Just like a brilliant teacher can't suffocate everything with his brilliance, you need to create space, step back, recede, and allow another consciousness to emerge. And this is the birth of other consciousness. Ultimately, this so-called next step is going to be the root of dissonance. But not yet. Because at this point, it's part of the divine 
seamlessness that also includes the capacity to leave space. But once you do have space, what happens next is that independent space can decide to choose to so-called separate itself from the original omnipresent seamless consciousness. So you have the divine consciousness, let's call it that, and you have now the other consciousness. And that, its intention is actually a beautiful one. It's to create a relationship. You can't have a relationship with yourself. Now you can have a relationship because there's two entities. The downside is that it creates the potential for dissonance. So essentially it begins with diversity that can lead to dissonance and and to the point of even divisiveness, what we call duality. In its worst form, it turns into duplicity and literally having competitive interests to the point of actually going to battle with one another. But it originated from that first split, so to speak. So the healthiest, purest state is oneness, what we call a singularity. We, in simple English, it means love. Love. Total love of, of diverse forces that learn to join together because they really originate in one central unity. So the whole purpose of it all is to allow the harmony to be created within diversity. But, as I said, the potential is that it can also go the other direction. And that's where the first trauma happens. The first trauma is that split, that break. It's a wound. Reality is total unity. A child in his mother's womb is completely submerged in the embryonic fluids and being nurtured for nine months. That's a unity. When the child is born, the umbilical cord is cut, a new entity has now been born. If parents are healthy parents, they continue nurturing the child unconditionally, and the unity remains, even though you have now a separate child. So as the child grows up, it's becoming independent, but its independence is not compromising its fundamental connection and attachment to those that it loves. And that attachment is critical to life, just like oxygen is needed for the human body and for human life. Attachment, love, which in Hebrew, the word for attachment, love, ava, is the same numerical equivalent as the word echot, unity. Ava and echot are both 13. That is the most natural and healthy state. Any trauma that happens in a person's life, and I'm talking now serious traumas, obviously, I'm not just talking about falling and, 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 uh, and, and uh, nipping your toe, creates and fee and creates a, a split. If the parents are not nurturing and not validating, so now the second consciousness is becoming more and more separate from its original unity. The goal is ultimately to get back to that unity. But unfortunately, trauma has a tendency of creating a next generation. Like I mentioned before, if you don't nip it in the bud, it can get worse. Nobody wanders off into a forest suddenly all lost. It's one little step in the wrong way. And if you don't correct the way, you go further and further until who knows where. So the first steps of either ignoring a situation or denial obviously don't help because then that, the, the consciousness of that individual becomes more and more separate from its initial unity and the problem only, only exacerbates. So when we do discover that this person has been traumatized, that's already something because we're recognizing 
that something split off. So now we need to address it. So giving that, 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 that person extra sensitivity and love is critical. Because that's the first step of reconnecting and attaching that person to things that, that are loving. Criticizing, judgmentalism, and everything we discussed earlier only feeds that dissonance. But the truth is that's not enough. What you want is to go back to the pre state. We want to go back to a state where that person is able to fully experience in the full unity. Not just to say, okay, you've been traumatized, so now we'll, we'll be extra sensitive and loving to you. We need to go back to that. So that, for that, you need the soul of this individual to reconnect to its very mission. And that's one of the key reasons. When I speak about this topic, I'll always say, give your children something to believe in, something they love, a passion. And actually, that was what, was, what, what caused that conversation. One of the conversations I had with an individual, he said, but my child was traumatized. I have to deal with the trauma. I said, yes, you have to be sensitive about the trauma and deal with whatever you can, but also give something positive to, the, to your child. What does that mean? Your child loves music? Get them involved in music. Your child loves to read, to write, to use their hands, something with, something with, with arts and crafts or whatever it may be. Programming. Find your child's strengths. Why? Because you don't want to just deal with the, with the, you don't want to just solve the problem. You want to also go back to a complete, unified, integrated state of consciousness. And for that, that human being needs to connect to why is it here in the first place. And that's the ultimate goal. So some will say that dissonance is a product of trauma. What I'm suggesting is that's true, but trauma is also a product of dissonance. The dissonance between the divine consciousness and the other consciousness. And we need to know that, which really, really says the following. This is an interesting point. And that is that we live in a world, as soon as we're born into this world, it's a traumatized world. Even though I said earlier, no one's born traumatized, that's correct in a, in a personal level. But the world itself that divine unity, that seamless unity I spoke about, is concealed. So it's not like we're living in a perfect world and then something happens. The very world is one of dissonance. And we need to recognize that. So when something actually happens, unfortunately, that really is just a product of the original dissonance of the tzimtzum. So that concealment allowed for a child to be hurt by somebody for someone to be traumatized. That would not be possible in the seamless omnipresence of a divine consciousness. It's only possible because there's another. But that doesn't mean we have to act on it. When actual traumas happen, when there's child abuse, or there's other forms of, of hurting someone that affects them deeply, it's essentially the byproduct of the original dissonance. So dissonance is the root of all the, the, the dissonance, what I'm referring to is that dissonance between the divine consciousness, that singularity, and the duality of existence, is the root of all other problems. So our goal is to retrace the steps. Yes, to have that sensitivity and recognize there's an issue here and not blame the, the victim or the survivor, God forbid, but then take it further and say, Something happened to you, but you're not defined by your trauma. 
See, that's where trauma can become the scapegoat. You become defined by it. And even the healing is defined by it. So now, okay, we're not going to call you a traumatized individual. We're not going to call you a handicapped person. But basically, our interaction with you will be as if we're working on eggshells or other things instead of actually saying, no, you're a soul. You're a divine soul. You come from a place that precedes trauma, that precedes dissonance, that precedes the symptom even. And you are able to reclaim that. So really we need is a combination of the sensitivity and love, because that adds to the attachment. The attachment that was severed due to the trauma or the abuse or whatever it is that created the problems. But then we have to travel even further and say, let us reignite or ignite your soul that was not defined by trauma. Your soul precedes the whole existence, the whole dissonance in the first place. And how do we do that? We'll find things that you identify with. You have a mission in this world. You have a mission to bring light into the world. You have a mission to contribute with what is unique about you. You and only you can contribute that. Teaching our children, teaching our adults that. The concept that you have a mission in this world. That is more powerful than any trauma that happened to you. So we're not looking to ignore it because, I mean, look, if we can ignore it, then there are no symptoms and no consequences. But in most cases, that's not going to work. So we're looking to address it. But you don't just want the person to be forever a patient. Okay, you're a patient, you were injured. So forever, you're going to have to take these, you're going to have to to keep on healing. There's a part to that that may be true. But it's not just about healing from your injury. It's also by connecting to something that precedes the injury. That you have something unique to contribute. And that was always there and always remains there. It may have gone undercover due to your trauma, due to your experiences in life. But it goes even further. Because now, fine. So we go back to that place. But what, what about all that has happened? What about the traumas? What about all the negative experiences that have happened? Are we just like saying, okay, we'll go back to that original state. We'll deal with this. We'll deal with the symptoms as much as we can through love and sensitivity. No, there's one more step. Even that can be redeemed. Because remember, the tzimtzum itself is also a divine creation. Meaning, that was also part of the plan. So, even the dissonance and the traumas can be transformed. First of all, they elicit that deeper sensitivity and empathy and love that we've talked about. That would not have been elicited had the person not been hurt. Because we may have just remained, okay, I love my children. But now that I've recognized my child has been hurt... It brings out from me and from everyone around us deeper love. So that's one element of transformation. But even furthermore, the person who suffered, the person who has experienced the trauma, can learn from it. Because within that abyss, within that darkness, lies power. Yes, it's inverted power. It's not revealed power. It's concealed power, but it's power. First of all, you become stronger. That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. stronger in the broken places. Secondly, you've learned things that only you could have learned going through that experience. That's not justifying the experience, but it's redeeming it. It's transforming it. And then, not only do you find your mission in general and reconnect to the pre-symptom reality and consciousness of seamlessness, but you also use the very negative things that happen in your life toward positive. You can help others in that situation. 
You've also developed a deeper sensitivity because of what you've experienced. The key thing is not to remain a victim, not to remain on the receiving end. You are a giver, and you are an influencer, and you can be proactive. That's what we need to teach people. So it's definitely commendable that we've reached a stage where we're sensitive to people's trauma, and therefore we behave a different way, much more kindly, gently, and so on, even if it's not condescending, but it's still not enough. We need to teach them to be teachers, leaders, initiators, influencers. And that person who's gone through, that, that survivor, has a power that no one else has. The power not just to go back to what your original soul's mission was, so-called in the seamless divine consciousness pre simpson but also to use what you've learned from this experience. Even the distress, even the, the pain, reached a deeper part of you where you're not just saying, oh, why did this happen to me, playing victim? What's going to be? No, you, you figured out what to do about it. And it's turned you into somebody that is initiating what you're going to do about it. That means that you have now become an influencer, a giver. And that's really the, the hallmark and the sign of a person who's reached a pre-Simpson state. We are not a product. We're not, definitely not a victim of circumstances. We're not a product and victim of the Simpson. The Simpson is also part of the bigger plan. And that's when we really create the full transformation. And that's the concept you find in the Talmud when it says, true tshuva, which means return. Not repentance alone, but return. It's transforming the most negative into the positive. In the Hebrew, it's called zdenis tezachis, which means that deliberate sins, deliberate, we'll call deliberate dissonance, or deliberate displacement into merits. We turn the liabilities into assets. The very negative, the very concealment, and the dissonance itself is turned into a positive. Because of what we've learned from the process. And then you have all the qualities, both the revelation of our skills and our unique contribution, our unique mission in life, the empathy and love and sensitivity. So we've become reattached after there was a detachment and a dissonance. But we've also used the very negative to catapult us and propel us into a place and recognize that too is part of my unified, seamless narrative of life. So this lays out some of the key points. So yes, we go through the steps, but all the way to the point where we come, I said before, ignoring a problem, denial, blame, sensitivity and empathy, recognizing that there's trauma and problem, but ultimately transformation. Well, ultimately leading a person also to recognize what their unique contribution, that they become reattached to their mission in life, and then ultimately transformation, transforming even the dark into a tremendous powerful light, and even higher than light, because it's all coming from a divine place that transcends darkness and light, and allows us to create a fusion of the two. So I hope this laid out at least the key building blocks of something that can be developed a lot further and requires much more discussion into a full system. And I hope to do so in the future. 
Um, and uh, with your partnership, I'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts and comments. And of course, sharing this with others. And um, it's always an honor. This has been Simon Jacobson, MeaningfulLife.com, where you can find this and many other programs that address the issues of our times, the struggles we go through. And um, as I said, it's an honor and blessing. Be well. I look forward to further programs with you. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com slash donate.